Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm excited for today's guest. They are a professional bull rider who, sadly, their career got cut short due to an ACL injury. Uh, But they found their passion again by saving ducklings from tornado accidents, uh, weather causes from the south. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Haley Brockop. Yep, Brock you got up. it. I wasn't sure if it was Brokaw. Brockup. Brockup. Yep. Haley, what made you get into bull riding initially? <laughs> I was at a rodeo once. <laughs> and it made me so sad to see how they were treated. <gasps> wow. And so I decided to just totally switch it up. I love it. Yep. You did lose like constantly because I you did. were just like. Too nice. I just pet them. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, okay. So I met you through my work, uh, modifiedtattooandpiercing.com. And as I do with a lot of folks, you know, ask what they do for a living and all that stuff. And are you okay with saying where you work? Yeah. Yep. I okay. work at. And interestingly enough, my wife used to work there. So I was like, oh my God. So yep. then you stuck out in my head and then you kept coming back because of all these MRIs. And I was like, girl. What's with all these MRIs? And we'll get to that later. But siblings growing up? Yep. I got two big brothers. Ah, two big brothers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So were they pretty protective of you growing up? Yeah. Yeah. Most certainly. (laughs) Um, What's the the age difference? So my brother Jordan's two years older. Brother John is six years older. Okay. So this was weird for me. Like once my, my brothers and I... I have one that's three years older and one that's three years younger. So as I was a freshman, he was a senior. And then as I was a senior, the younger one was a freshman. So like we got one year of high school together. When you two were in high school, was like, were you like, ugh, it's my brother? Or <laughs> Actually, no. I was always like weirdly proud of my brother Jordan. I didn't get to go to school with my oldest one, obviously, with, right. the, with the six year difference. But yeah, I was always like, that's my brother. Don't know if that was like reciprocated or not, but <laughs> that's how I felt about it. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, you don't always get that. Now, as far as your career choice, when you were growing up, did you find that you experienced anxiety yourself? Yeah, I was dealing with anxiety and depression, but didn't know what it was. And so I think that whole journey is what made me want to work in that field, because I can only imagine if that's how I felt, that's how other kiddos are out there feeling and not really knowing what this is or how to deal with it. Do you remember like when you first started to recognize that, you know, you were not feeling yourself like, cause it's, it's different for other, like everybody, obviously, but in some it's like, you know, I just didn't want to hang out or go out with friends. I was too anxious about it. Um, and others forced themselves into those scenarios and was just a nightmare having to be in crowds all the time. For me, it wasn't so much social anxiety. Um, it was more just like generalized anxiety Mm. and so it was more like the obsessive worrying at night um worrying about things out of my control and those kinds of things but 
I did pretty well going out and hanging out with my friends and that type of stuff. Okay. So you're at an interesting age too, because when you were in high school, mental health was being talked about a little bit more because we were seeing issues with other schools, unfortunately, school shootings and things like that uh, ramping up. So they were, I recall they're trying, they were trying to integrate it more and more. I think it's a lot better now, but um, so like, did you have support at the school or was this something that you were kind of keeping to yourself? I was keeping it to myself. It wasn't kind of like you're saying, like it wasn't yet widely talked about or super accepted to just openly talk about it. And so I was able to tell my friends, even my parents, but I didn't exactly reach out for help within the school either. Um, so like catastrophizing was like your your biggest issue, it sounds like? Yeah. So did depression follow that because you didn't feel like you could get over that stuff? I think depression, I think it probably came first, honestly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and for me it was... I noticed that I just, you know, wasn't able to be present in the moment, wasn't like the other kids. I'd be out with my friends and they're all having a great time and I'm just not able to be present in the moment and I just always felt different. Mm. And so, but like I said, I never knew what it was and I think that kind of made things even worse because I'm thinking, you know, what's going on with me? Why am I not like my friends? And then I think the anxiety kind of followed that's interesting i like i was that way but when i talk to like what i consider normal people (laughs) it always seems like it's the reverse it's it usually seems like anxiety hits and then because they can't figure out how to resolve the issue then depression follows that so it's interesting that it went that way yeah so when you bring this up to your folks you said you brought it up to your mom yep Do you remember what that conversation was like? Yeah, we were in the car and I just said, Mom, I think I I have depression and anxiety. And she asked some questions, asked if I wanted to go to the doctor and then ended up bringing me to my primary care doctor to talk more about it. And she didn't know what next steps would be either. And so we figured that was a good place to start. Okay. It's interesting, like going to primary doctors because it feels like they they kind they kind of know what to say, but they also seem like they don't know what to say at all. Like they have their kind of checklist of like, are you feeling these things? Well, let's set up an appointment with the therapist, or let's do this. Yeah, I. I didn't feel like very supported by my primary care doctor. I think my age had a lot to do with it. They would ask, you know, so you're feeling sad? And I would say, like, I think so. It feels a little different than just sad, but yes. And then they'd just follow it up with, you know, really insensitive questions. Like, did you recently have a breakup that would make you feel this way? And it's like, no, this is... This is more than that. And I think just my age, they just kind of assume, you know, oh, you're sad, you'll get over it type of thing. Yep. And so I was put on a very minimal dose of, I think maybe Prozac was the first one. Oh, okay. And then when that didn't help, they just bounced me around to Lexapro and like different mm. ones. So instead of working with one medication 
and bumping it up and acknowledging that they needed to work with me on this. They just kept throwing around different ones, maybe just hoping, you know. Yeah. Well, and with every medication, you have to wait at least two weeks. So and then if it doesn't work within two weeks, they're like, give it a month. And so you have these big gaps in between medication, too, where you're like, what am I supposed to feel like? Like right. there's no guidance on is it supposed to make me happy or am I just not supposed to feel those feelings? Like where where am I supposed to be? That's a, a huge failing in in the medical field um, is, you know, doctors taking on roles that should be handed off to mental health professionals because they don't tell you that you might just not feel sad, which if you've been feeling that for a long time, now you're like, uh oh, so it feels like something's missing. What's going on? And then you're anxious all over again. And so it's it's tough to like accurately depict like life will just be boring again. Right. Like <laughs> if if it feels like nothing's going on, then that might just be normal. It might just not it's not and then kids conflate, oh, now I feel nothing now. You know what I mean? Like right. you hear a lot of kids say these pills are changing me. They don't make me feel like I am anymore. And it's like, well, it's just not exacerbating those heavier emotions. And now he's just, just a boring kid just like everybody else. Yeah, I hear that a lot, you know, in my job is, you know, kiddos saying, I don't feel like myself on this medication. I don't want to take it. And so I think you're right. There's a lack of explaining what to expect from these medications and to expect that you will feel different. And that's maybe the goal. And that's okay to feel different because you've gotten so used to just sitting with those unpleasant feelings for yeah. so long. As you're going through those medications, I mean, are you noticing like, better changes or is it just confusing it was just confusing and kind of defeating because oh. i just i just kind of thought maybe meds don't work for me and it didn't come till later that i realized they failed me by not just sticking with one medication and bumping it up to me that was like them saying it was them invalidating that i truly had something going on just kind of hoping that after throwing me around on different medications. Maybe I'd just kind of go off into the distance and live yeah. my life. Yeah. And the, I hate when they say like follow up because it's like, well, I've, I, I have followed up and you just made shit more confusing. So right. yeah, it's super disheartening. That's, mm -hmm. it's a good way of look. I've never thought about it in that sense of like, they are failing you because I don't think there's anything wrong in saying, I'm not sure if this is going to correct the issue, but why don't we, you know, check, follow up with therapy. Do you have somebody at school that you can talk with? Yeah. I don't know. I, I came up uh, of a generation where like they started stuffing kids with pills, you know, uh, Ritalin was, was a big one, um, which really fucked with people's emotions, especially if they didn't actually have ADHD. Right. Um, but yeah, Zoloft was a big one that, you know, kids were getting prescribed that all the time um, in like, you know, the circles of depression and, and things like that. And there 
there wasn't any like yeah the only the only thing that we like all remember i say this like we're all in war or something but (laughs) (laughs) um was that one of the side effects is that it may exaggerate feelings of suicide and it's like what a fucking side effect to have for kids who are depressed like why even take it yeah it's so dangerous yeah so at what point, like, did you end up going going to therapy or were you doing research on your own? I was never once referred to a psychiatrist for medication management. And so... Oh, it I, was all with your primary? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. So never once did they actually refer me to someone who specializes in that field, which, again, to me, showed they didn't take this seriously. And so... I ended up learning on my own because my friend was seeing a psychiatrist. And so um, on my own, I sought out a psychiatrist for managing medications. I think I was probably like 18 at that point. Wow. Um, They did refer me to therapy and I did do a few sessions with a therapist. We did not connect. She really focused on wanting to like uncover trauma. I don't Mm. really have. I'm very fortunate that I don't really have that in my past. I had a very stable upbringing and it kind of felt like she really wanted to uncover something big and work through that. And so I I stopped going just because I felt uncomfortable going to those sessions. Yeah, that's always such a bummer because I feel like it's therapists like early on. that romanticize like this whole i'm gonna find the thing that they didn't even realize was there yep and then we're gonna have this huge breakthrough and sometimes it's not there but the thing that they're missing is if you have this stable upbringing and you have these um you know seemingly positive things but you're still feeling this way that can make things even more confusing and worse yeah Um, absolutely so yeah, I I call it the starving children in Africa argument, which is like the knowledge of an atrocity is not going to make my shit feel any better. Mm-hmm. If anything, it'll make me feel worse. So when you have, you know, people that are, I, I don't know if this was their situation, but I, I had like a similar thing. My parents were insanely supportive Um, did all of the right things. There was a smidge on the religious side, but by all accounts, like were absolutely there for me. And I still had massive mental health issues and things that I couldn't cope with. And so it made me feel like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why am I so different than everybody else? Yeah, absolutely. It makes you feel wrong for feeling that way. Cause it's like, who am I to have these feelings when I have the best family, the best parents. And so you kind of like invalidate yourself in that way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and when I was younger, we had, um, emo music. I'm an elder emo as they're known. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but so you would just get that label. So like, Oh, he's a sad kid. He listens to sad music. He's just an emo kid. He's just being dramatic and it's because of music and that whole scene. And, so then now I'm even more fucked up because like, well, I wanted the thing that like 
when people say I want to be normal, what they really mean is like, I just want to be able to make a decision without thinking of all the negative outcomes that could happen based on like a, a pretty normal decision. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So how was that breakup though? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, that drove me nuts. I, hate, I hated that whole experience <laughs> with my primary care doctor. So I would just always recommend if you feel like you're not getting what you need from your PCP, go to a psychiatrist. You- Ooh, I love PCP. <laughs> So we were talking about different things. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, primary care physician. Sorry. Yep. Yep. Um, now, in your friend circles, like I don't know if it's still this way, but the Becker schools, when once you hit high school, bec- became very clicky, or like you were just categorized very quickly. It felt like. Like jocks are over here, theater kids, like it was all kind of separated. So I'm curious if it was still like that when you were going to school. It was. And so this just added to my confusion because I was in sports. So I had, I was friends with jocks. I also had a lot of friends that weren't jocks. I don't even know how to classify them. I was kind of a floater, I guess is what I would say. So I had friends in all different places and so never felt like, I truly belonged in any one group, which looking back, that's a great thing. But at the time, it doesn't feel that way. Right. Yeah, because it's so like visibly expressed because the people that get invited to certain parties all kind of look the same, mm-hmm. all kind of have similar interests. So, you know, for as accepting as kids are, they're also not really like reaching out all the time. Right. Um, so, yeah, I get that for sure. What what sports were you doing? Well, I did a little bit of everything. Um, basketball early on, gymnastics early on, and then switched gears to volleyball, and then I was a runner. So I did cross country for a couple years and also track. And I think that's it. That's interesting. So like senior year, were you doing track? Senior year, I was done with sports because I decided – fuck high school and <laughs> went to college my senior year oh no shit yep uh what's that post-secondary yep interesting it is a totally different environment and um it feels like there's more space is the only way i can think of describing it is like that initial first feeling of when you walk onto a campus and you're seeing kids your age but they're like completely independent it's like feels like the world is totally open mm-hmm. um so then when you go back to high school, it's like, ugh, I'm in this little box again. Suffocating a little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was curious about is like, did you experience that kind of feeling of like open fields and then you're in a dog kennel? Maybe not a dog kennel. That's actually a pretty good way to describe it. I remember walking um, into the school for my graduation ceremony and not really wanting to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel like I belonged at all anymore because it had been a whole year and I wasn't I hadn't been going to school with them anymore and coming back to high school territory it seemed just so childish and they had no idea what reality was like and yeah it was definitely a big a big difference for me uh were you going to tech 
I went to Anoka Ramsey oh. for a semester, and then I actually transferred to St. Cloud State for my second semester to finish out my senior year because I knew that's where I wanted to go after I graduated, mm, too. Okay. When you're, you know, I wouldn't say, I don't know how else to word it other than separating, but you're kind of separating yourself by going to post-secondary. Did you notice that your friends were like, we don't see you around anymore or anything? You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I there were times where I felt a little left out because it seemed like, you know, out of sight, out of mind, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not there every day anymore. And so I definitely drifted apart from a lot of my friends and noticed I just naturally wasn't getting word on invites to things because I wasn't Mm. walking the halls and those types of things. But I would say, you know, my friends were happy for me. There wasn't any resentment for moving on and doing the next thing. Did you feel isolated? Because it's tough to, like, for as open as that feels, it's also tough to make friends because you're technically still a high school student. So I guess... Yeah, I'm I'm curious about like what that where you ended up as far as like did you still have people that you were hanging out with or I had two really good friends that I just grew up with that I never lost touch with and then I actually did make some pretty cool friends right away and oh. at Anoka Ramsey. So, I'm pretty social and there's a lot of group projects, group presentations and so whether you like it or not, you're kind of forced into socializing with others and um, made friends with people of all different ages. That's what's cool about a community college, too, is you're going to get anywhere from high school students all the way up to 50 or 60 year olds yeah. coming back to, you know, change up their path, too. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. My parents actually at around 50 did that. Yep, Went back to school. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty cool. So I, I kind of glossed over it. Sorry. Um, but you had said that uh, you had a friend who was seeing a psychiatrist. So then through there, you had spoken to a therapist. And then after that, did you like, had you done research enough to know like what they're doing is incorrect? I'm just going to take care of it on my own. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty much how it <laughs> went. So I, I realized that I needed to do something differently And I support therapy quite a bit, but I also knew what I had going on, needed actual medication management just to get me a little more stabilized before I could even think about researching and finding a therapist, another therapist. For me, that might be a better fit. And so I think at that time, there was a misconception that you couldn't just openly call a clinic yourself and say, I'm looking for a psychiatrist. Um, I think, you know, one, I didn't really know what they were. And two, I think I just assumed I would need some sort of formal referral process or something along those lines. And my friend said, no, I just I just called and you can just self-refer. And so that's kind of how I came across that. That's really interesting. I actually never thought about that because I was definitely in that frame of mind where like you have to meet with your primary care physician first. Mm hmm. PCP as it's known in the streets. <laughs> um, and yeah, and get a referral. I guess we're conditioned for so long that we have to get a referral from our doctor for anything. But you're right. You can absolutely call. I mean, 
for anything, really, when you yeah. think about it. Wow, that's interesting. So did you end up connecting with somebody to get uh, medication management then? Yep. So I reached out. I was able to establish with a psychiatrist and I've been with them ever since. Oh, okay. I was curious as to like what that relationship was going to be like, because anytime that I've met with a psychiatrist, it's been kind of like, I know what I need. So I just need you to confirm that this is in fact what I need. And then we will part ways. And and that was it. I definitely didn't utilize them to their their full potential um, yeah. or get everything out of it that I could have. It's been a while since I've kind of like sent feelers out to see like what it's like now, like, I don't know, maybe six or seven years. But because we have so much knowledge and because we have podcasts, we have YouTube videos, we have all these things. I mean, there's even checklists. There's, you know, you could go to BuzzFeed, figure out what kind of burrito you are or (laughs) figure out if you're on the spectrum. So it's like this really weird you know, availability of information that kind of separates that what feels like a need for therapy or a psychiatrist. So I, I'm, I, I wonder what, what folks are doing now and whether they're like just trying to do shit on their own because we have all of this stuff available or if they're, you know, going and utilizing stuff. Yeah, I think it's a blessing and a curse that we have yeah. all this information at our disposal because, of course, vulnerable minds, yeah. um, you know, tend to take on everything they see and that's not always accurate information. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but like I'm convinced that I'm autistic at least once a week because of some video that I watch or some oh, TV yeah. show or something. Yeah. Self-diagnosing is <laughs> is dangerous. And so it's tough, but it's tough not to, once you start to know things, it's like, I, and I'm, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm curious is to, once you started to learn things, did you start to look back on life and go, oh, mom had anxiety or uncle Fester had epilepsy? I don't know. Yeah. It's <laughs> once you have the knowledge. Yeah. I definitely find myself psychoanalyzing people and you notice the like the key traits of for me borderline is especially easy to um identify yeah. in in most people so i do that quite a bit yeah the self destructive nature and um yep. self yeah self sabotage and all that fun stuff and i it takes me a minute to go like bipolar or borderline but yeah once once you start to see all the self-destructive stuff it's like oh no mm-hmm. that one i get sad because it's like there's medication that can help but most of it is that behavioral stuff that you have to do so it's like the work that they have to do is so much more than some of us who you know have other diagnoses and so it's always kind of a bummer for me right yeah it is harder for them for sure and they can be difficult to work with. And so I was just going to say, that's so funny. Yep. Please continue. Yeah. So it can be hard for them to find, you know, professionals who are invested in them and are able to kind of work through those difficulties with them. Yeah. I, I've heard that a lot um, <laughs> from, I, I 
obviously can't say anybody, but like when they talk about their experience and they say such a naughty kid and I'm like, but why were they there? Oh, it's BPD. It's like, well, that's why they're naughty. Like they don't, they probably don't want to be that way. Right. But they just don't know. I don't know. A lot of the, the individuals that I've spent time with, I almost said worked with, but like, <laughs> I'm not a professional, so I can't properly. I, I, I've taught myself because I have codependency issues that rather than letting my white knight syndrome like take over and be like, I will fix your BPD. It's like, I can give you some stuff, but you actually have like a lot of work that you have to do and it's yeah. going to suck. Once they find somebody who does care, they bring the shitty stuff that they did. They know that it's bad and they know that you're going to have a negative reaction to it. But because you've shown that you care about them, they're going to bring it anyways. Yeah. So it, I get why it's frustrating because they it's so tough for them to find people who understand what that's like. So when they find somebody that understands, like, even though these things are still going on, it's like, I I have to vomit this, all of this stuff that happened. Right. So as you're going through college and you're doing all the cocaine, <laughs> did you do all the cocaine? Most of it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but like, were there, you know, were you going specifically to be any one thing like therapy or at that point, all I knew was I wanted to study psychology and criminal justice. I had no idea how those two could intersect or what I might want to do with it until probably second half of college. Okay. And then, and then <laughs> I learned about forensic psychology, which Forensic psychologists work with criminals and do evaluations, um, all different kinds. So a common one is evaluating um, if they're safe to go out on parole, ah. evaluating if they can, um, you know, use the insanity defense. Oh, wow. And then oftentimes using those psychological evaluations and the results to testify in court and give your professional opinion on what can or can't be done. Wow, that's heavy. Yeah, so I I kind of always knew I didn't really want to be in the therapy world. Okay. I more so wanted to be, I wanted to figure out how I could be utilizing my knowledge in the criminal justice field too. Wow. So wait, so after school, did you did you end up doing forensic psychology? So I did... My undergrad internship, I worked at a facility where um, I was able to work with sex offenders Whoa. who were either, yeah, <laughs> heavy, um, who were either out on parole or their past parole. And I actually really liked what I did for a lot of reasons. And I went on to get my master's degree in the same field. Holy smokes. So I have my master's degree in clinical psychology with a specialization in forensic psychology. Holy fuck. Mm -hmm. Man, working with, you're the second person that I've met who has done that. I can, I, how do you not 
strangle these people because it's like obviously I'm I'm being a little facetious, but like that's just so heavy, such a tough thing to deal with. I mean, when you're talking with these people, is it did it seem like they felt shame or it was a little bit of everything. Okay. So um I had some who were so great to work with and I was a hundred percent behind them because they had totally made a 180. They were putting the work in. They've acknowledged their actions and they're doing what they can to get on a better path. We also had narcissists who, um, you know, were trying to fake their way through things. But when you're one-on-one with them, you can tell that they're taking no accountability. They're just going through the motions to try to get out of treatment and move on. And then we had people who I didn't even think belonged there. Um, situations where, you know, they were in a relationship with someone underage Mm. and a breakup happens and now parents get involved and now they're calling the police. And now this young man is labeled a sex offender for the rest of his life. So those ones were tough for me too, because yes, they made a mistake of being with someone underage and not thinking of all those repercussions, but not believing they really belonged there and in treatment as a convicted sex offender. Yeah. And so I had to work through all sorts of different personal biases, learning how to set those aside. Um, And so I think that was just like such an incredible experience so early on in my career. Wow. Yeah. I, I talk about that a lot on this show is like, there's a lot of turnover when it comes to mental health and those that are able to stick it out they have this capability of shutting off an aspect of their their mind, which sounds like cold, I guess, but really it's to protect, you know, your individuality because you do have to be, um, you know, objective and mm-hmm. and you know because laws are laws and things like that, especially in in what you were doing. Man, that's so interesting. Uh, So how long did you do that for? I did that for one semester. Um, I got into it by accident. I didn't really know what I was signing up for. (laughs) Um, And then in the interview is when when they told me, you know, just so you know, our largest population is sex offenders. And is that something you could do? And so I, I did it and ended up really liking it. And I was actually sad to leave. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the aspect that you enjoyed, was it like learning about something that was totally foreign to you or because I mean, I don't I don't know how much research you were doing into sex offenders prior to that. But I, I'm curious as to, yeah, what where the fulfillment comes in that arena. Yeah, I think that's such a good question. <laughs> and I still like noodle on that quite a bit. Like, why did I? Why did I like it? I think the biggest thing was I had to work through a lot of personal biases, learning to set that aside. That was pretty important, but also helping these people to get on a different path because I would say the majority of them I worked with were there to put the work in. Wow. And it was pretty cool to be a part of that journey with them, working on their projects, their assignments, um, helping them draft 
letters to those that they've hurt, you know, their victims. Oof. Um, it was pretty cool to work with those ones. Of course, it wasn't all great. There were the ones who weren't putting the work in and they were very difficult to work with. But for the most part, I had a lot of awesome guys that I worked with. Was it like there were dual diagnoses going on in that arena? I would say almost always. Mm. That's that's fascinating to me. I, it, in our society, I mean, as soon as we hear that word sex offender, like, imme- I, I can't think of anybody who's like, well, what were the circumstances? Like, it's almost, it's like 99.99% of the time people just write them off yeah. and... We want to, I mean, people are constantly saying, you know, cut their genitals off. I do, you know, these horrible maiming things to them without thinking, you know, what, what circumstances led to this happening? Were they, I mean, the narcissist is, I think what everyone imagines that guy who thinks he is deserved this, you know, sexual favor or whatever from somebody and who are they to deny me and, and that whole spiel. But yeah, I, I'm like, did you see individuals who had like trauma in, in their own lives? Yeah, I would say the ones who did the most disturbed things often had the most disturbing backgrounds. Which would make sense. Right. And like you said, no one wants to dig into that. Or put that time in because of what they did. Yeah. I don't know if you know uh, or Sarah Colford. Um, she's a pretty big advocate in in Minnesota in general. Actually, I was going to say Becker, but really the whole state. Um, she's worked with uh, sex offenders and, and given talks and things like that. And she always said that the, the question that she got the most was, when are they going to forgive me? And trying to wrap my head around that was like, how could you think that they would forgive you? Like, I mean, how do you help someone process through, I don't know if this was your role or not, but like processing through most of the time, they're not going to forgive you, I would imagine. Yeah, just trying to shift their perspective that they don't owe you forgiveness. You work on forgiving yourself and you work on being a better person. But if you're if you're waiting on forgiveness, you could be waiting the rest of your life because they don't owe you that. Man, that's so intense. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess you have an interesting, I'm going to ask a question real quick. We can cut this out, but. So in talking with these individuals, did it help you understand what you had been through in, in any form? A little bit, yeah. Just kind of understanding that almost all of these people who've hurt someone or violated someone were violated themselves in some way. Mm. That piece, I think, helped me understand because I think that is totally applicable. Wow, that is so wild. It's funny, like, when I have people on the show to talk about a certain thing and then what ends up being the most interesting is something that I never would have even thought of. Right. Um, yeah, that, that whole world is, is just, I can't imagine that being like my nine to five job because it would see, I, I don't know. I could see how you could get burnt out on that 
because I don't feel like the number of offenders is really going down. Right. So like, you know, you're putting in all this work, you're sacrificing an aspect of yourself to try to be able to help these individuals. And then we go out into the real world and it's like, well, kind of seems like everything's the fucking same. Right. Which is brutal. And a lot of the therapists there that I worked under had had kids of their own. And so I had some conversations with a couple of them kind of asking for these clients who violated a child, how the hell do you work with them and truly because to be someone's therapist, you have to be invested in them. Right. You have to empathize with them. You have to work with them. And so I learned a lot from those therapists because that is like a prime example of having to set aside oh, yeah. your personal life to work with a client. Wow. Yeah. That's, do you remember any of the advice that they had given you or? They kind of like you said, were unique people who are able to shut out their personal life when they walk into the building mm. and just try to, you can, you can empathize with someone without, without saying what you did was okay. Mm. So I saw a lot of that, a lot of working with them, validating what they've been through. But that doesn't mean you're telling them what you did was okay or I understand what you did. It's just I understand where you come from and I'm willing to work through this with you. That. I'm glad you said that because that seems to be a big thing that people cannot like see how um, those two things can coexist like validation and empathy without saying, I agree with what happened. Yep. Like it's, I mean, especially over the last four years, I mean, Jesus Christ, like it is just a battlefield out there every day. It feels like, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that's that's a huge. Hey, listeners, look into that. Right, be like Hilly Bracaca cups. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think that's super important because I have that ability. I think because of my codependency, because my brain, you know, goes to well, nobody else is going to be there for them because they did this thing. So how do I? you know, validate to other people why I'm able to to talk with a friend who did some fucked up shit or, or all these things. So like, it's interesting to be like, oh, I'm that way because I didn't address my own personal issues and set proper boundaries and things growing up. But now, like, I'm kind of glad that I have. It, it's interesting to like the way that I look at codependency is like, it can be a really awful thing and like really kind of um, imprison you in certain situations or somebody like myself and my mom who won't admit that she has codependency issues (laughs) (laughs) um, is that it it allows you to, yeah, shut this aspect off and, and see a person who's hurting. And if they're given a chance, maybe then there will be a better outcome and they'll in turn, you know, be hopefully be a better person. But yeah. And I think another cool way to look at it is if you think about a mistake you've made 
or someone you've hurt, would you want that to define you? Oh, man. No, you wouldn't because we all make mistakes and that doesn't mean that's who you are. It just means that's something you did. Yeah. So that was, I think, helpful for me too going through that because I've fucked up plenty of times in my life. I've hurt people. I know. I seem perfect, but I'm not. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, you know, obviously it's, it's not quite the same. They did something far worse than my worst mistake. Sure. And they does that mean it should define them forever right well i it's interesting though because knowing that you have anxiety it can feel like those things define you mm-hmm. and so i'm sure you experience this too like you think about something that you did 20 years ago and you're like whoa can't believe i can't believe i shoved that crayon up my nose and <laughs> asked somebody to play pokemon with me i don't know um but yeah, it's yeah, the human brain is so fascinating. The scenarios that people can create to validate something in a situation and then the very next day go, "What the fuck was I thinking?" Mhm. Like it's how how did it seem so logical? Um I mean, I've been sober for almost three years and I still have had those situations where I'm like, I'm sober guy now. I can't even say I was drunk for that situation. I just made a weird call and spent $300 on a video game convention for some reason. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So I guess in, in what you do now, are you more of like an intake role? Yep. So... We work with people who are initially reaching out for services, whether it be a referral from their provider or they're just self-seeking care. So my team takes those phone calls, um, does a brief intake over the phone to try and figure out where should we place this, this individual, what service might be the best fit for them, and then going through all the different scheduling pieces and getting them registered and getting them to the right level of care. Mm. How long have you been there now? Five years. Five years. Holy smokes. Um, have you seen, is capacity the same when you started or have they added, um, you know, beds and rooms and things? We've, we've added, we've grown quite a bit and um, we are going to continue to expand and grow. I think if anything good came from this pandemic, it's the realization that, we are not putting enough resources into mental health services. And so we're seeing a lot of different legislation come through, um, a lot of different financial supports coming through. People are more willing to help support the growth of mental health facilities. Yeah. I mean, that that's something that comes up almost every episode of this is like the biggest misconception when it comes to mental health is that Somebody has a mental health crisis, they can just put them in a bed that night. And the lack of capacity in, I mean, it feels like everywhere. I mean, people are getting, you know, sent four hours away from where they live because there's zero beds from here to Fargo. And that's such a massive problem. And I, I, don't, I haven't gotten the chance to talk to somebody who's experienced that yet. I know that it happens all the time. But that feeling of like, I need help, and now I have to sit and stew with 
whatever's going on with me for four hours until I get to this next facility, try to get acclimated and hopefully get help. Like it's gotta be insane. Yeah. And there's a lot of kiddos just being sent home from the ER because there isn't enough beds. And so now they're having to kind of try to triage and prioritize who truly needs that bed more. Wow. And so we get parents calling in a panic, you know, saying we need immediate help. We reiterate that we're really not a crisis center. You should go to the emergency room. And they say, I've done that. They sent me home. (sighs) So it's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, I know the um, intake in uh, St. Cloud um, is through the ER. So if you're having a mental health crisis or you just got in a car accident, they all go to the same place. And the rooms that they put you in are these, I mean, they're almost the size of this room, but it's like steel, like this, these reinforced doors and doors that, you know, might not open until somebody else comes and opens it. And like, so you feel like you're in like a holding cell rather than, you know, I, (laughs) I was feeling suicidal. I don't want to feel like I'm in prison. Like it's so intense. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, from the, the kids perspective, the stories that I would hear are just so, it's so fucking sad. Like I, I had to have like, individuals stop they were i was like you can't tell me stories anymore because i'm way too much of an empath to where like this is gonna fuck up my whole week Mm -hmm. and but like parents who were just giving up was the toughest thing for me to understand like any any kid i just i can't i don't know what their situation is but like to have your kid go to a facility that's supposed to help them. Right. And they're making progress and they want to tell you about that progress, but you're not showing up. How are they going to continue to grow outside of that facility when, you know, they're, I don't know. It's just, it's a lot. Sorry. That was kind of a lot that I said as well. A little venting. Um, What would you say the toughest part of your job is? I would say, you know, people are typically reaching out at, a very low point, obviously. They're looking to us for help. And so my team spends all day listening to these people who are hurting. They're hearing their stories. They help get them set up where they need to go. And then we have to let go and move on to the next person reaching out for help. Wow. And so we don't get to follow that through. We don't know you know, did they show up for that program? Did they make it through? Did they get better? Did they get what they need? So that's another skill, learning to let go, set that boundary and say, we did what we can do for them. We guided them to the right care. And now there's the next person needing care. So let's move on to that and hear their story and their pain. Man, even that got me emotional because- Fuck, dude, that's so tough. The, it made me think. So when Kim was there, there was a. It was it was tough for her. Um, but the one thing that made it all worth it, she got one letter from a kid who wanted to follow up and let her know that she had helped. And it's like, 
man, so much of that is not knowing. That's so, <laughs> you're doing such a great thing. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, there's still a lot of reward <laughs> just in, you know, being that comforting voice to talk them through and say you did the right thing reaching out. Here's what we can do for you. There's a lot of fulfillment from that. But, it, you know, it is hard because the actual treatment teams follow that through and they work with that child and they yeah. know the outcome and we don't. Man, that's crazy. I mean, are you... I'm always curious about this too. Like, are you allowed to like look into like what happened or, or what their treatment plan was like anything like that? Not really. So under HIPAA, there's a minimum necessary Mm. piece of that where you should only access the minimum necessary information you need to do your job. And so, you know, looking into someone's chart just because I personally became invested in that kid and just want to know if they're okay. Mm -hmm. As honorable as that is and, (laughs) and sweet as that is, you know, technically it's, it's not really justified. There are times where for educational purposes, we can justify it um, because part of my team is a little more clinical. They're actual mental health practitioners. And so, um, you know, there are times where it's like a teaching moment, but outside of that, no, we're not supposed to go and, and look at things we don't need to. Mm. Now, on to um, the, I mean, this is where the power lifting comes in. This is the heavy heavies. I might even need a forklift for this one. Okay. I told Kim she might have to hold me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why you were coming into modify so much um was because you were you had some doctor's visits um and i'm like curious as to like kind of walk me through when that started and why you you know sought pd not pediatric because you're a baby <laughs> <laughs> um when you were when you were seeking help so back in january i started having some tingling mostly in my right hand and arm and I would honestly say I'm probably a hypochondriac it started as just health anxiety okay doing the research you know diagnosing myself but then it just came became like I'm a hypochondriac and so I googled which big no-no don't do it (laughs) just don't um and convinced myself, well, I have multiple sclerosis. Oh, wow. And so I was terrified. I went in to see my primary care doctor and was told, you know, that's a common symptom of anxiety is tingling. And I had said, I am very familiar with how my anxiety (laughs) presents. Very familiar. This isn't it. I've never, it's never like manifested itself as like, tingling right this is something different something's not right and so she said you know if it make you feel better we can get you to a neurologist and so i advocated for that good for you and then i went to the neurologist they did a very basic like tap my knees to make sure i'm not paralyzed and can you follow my finger and well you're okay because you can do all of those basic things and i said you know 
can I ask for an MRI? Can I ask for, you know, imaging to make sure everything's okay? I'm worried I have MS um, or something else similar. And so she said, you know, those are expensive, but we can definitely put in an order for one. And I said, you can't really put a price on my peace of mind. Absolutely. So I'll pay it. I don't care. And so I got the MRI in February, about a month later, and they found um, three lesions on my brain in my right frontal lobe. And at first it did look like MS. And oh, so wow. they, um, I was misdiagnosed at first with a demyelinating disease, which is usually MS. Um, I guess I've never known what, what, what is a, a lesion? Do you know what? So a lesion is an abnormal area. And okay. so a lesion could be, um, it could be a wound on your skin. Oh. It could be um, just an abnormal area of tissue in your brain. It could be a tumor. It could be all sorts of different things. Interesting. I didn't realize it was that broad of a of It's a very broad, yeah. And so, so at that time, that's what we thought was going on. And so then I followed up with my neurologist, and she after looking at it more, was just very stumped. She said, this could be MS, but this looks different. She said, MS lesions are typically deeper in the brain. Mine were more towards the surface. Mine were larger. The shapes were weird. She said, just based on her her experience, it just, something didn't look right, and she didn't feel confident in saying, this is MS. And so at that time, she said, you know, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go through with a bunch of different testing. And so now you guys want to test. Huh? Yep. I'm like, oh, interesting. <laughs> weird. <laughs> Almost like I knew something was wrong. It's, um, it's always weird. I mean, in my experience, they never acknowledge that they missed something. Like they just go yep. about like, this is information that we're presenting. We're just going to ignore the fact that we tried to get you to not do this thing. Yeah. N not ever has that happened for me yet. <laughs> so uh, she ordered all sorts of blood tests. Sorry, now my anxiety is. Um, so lots of blood work and then a spinal tap, also known as a lumbar puncture. So that's an actual procedure. Everything looked great in my blood work, in my spinal fluid. They checked for the typical cancer markers. They didn't see that, any of that. They checked for the typical markers for MS. They didn't see any of that. And so now they're even more confused. Oh and God. that's really not comforting <laughs> to know that a professional neurologist is stumped and has no idea what's going on. And so at that time, I said, do I need to be worried that there could be some type of cancer going on. And she said, I really don't think so because with cancer, you typically see all sorts of like scary stuff around the lesions. You see swelling and you see, you know, all sorts of red flags and we're not seeing that here. And so, you know, at this time, I don't think that that's something you need to worry about. And so the last resort was going in for an actual biopsy of the lesion tissue we were trying to avoid that because that's a, that's a brain surgery. Yeah. 
And so, um, but that's what was, it was that, or the other option would be to just do nothing and get an MRI every three to six months and just watch this thing and see what happens. And so, you know, I said, let's go forward with the surgery. And so in May, (laughs) so, you know, four months later from when this all started, we finally got to the point of having the brain biopsy Holy shit, you actually had a brain out. My brain got frazzled there because I didn't I didn't realize that you had actually done that. Yeah. Yep. Holy smokes. I did end up having brain surgery in May. So I went to Abbott, um, stayed, I think it was just one night. Um, it went really well for the most part. And then so they pulled out what they could. They sent it to pathology. And it came back and they were able to say this is a grade two astrocytoma, which is a brain tumor. And so um, what they didn't know is if this was cancerous. And so they sent it to the Mayo because they have some additional testing they can do that Abbott couldn't. Hmm. So now and they said, you know, this can take three to four weeks. The, the days like after that brain surgery, I mean, did you like even notice that you had had surgery like what does that feel like the recovery was a little more rough than i had thought it would be which is funny because looking back like why why didn't i think it would be rough (laughs) it's a brain surgery like they went into my head um but it felt like i'd get really bad headaches and there were times where like i'd have pain like in my whole body oh man because your brain controls everything you know, no. it controls how all your nerves fire and everything. And yeah. so um, it was a little bit rough for probably five to seven days or so. Okay. Um, and then after 10 days, I went in, they pulled out the stitches and and off I went. Wow. God, that's so wild. Yeah. So got a pretty gnarly scar from it. Yeah? Yeah. Do you want to show everybody? I'm kidding. I, I mean, I would, but do you see all this hair? <laughs> it's kind of hard to show. We'll just shave the part. Oh, did they did they cut hair? They did. They yep. did. Yep. So there's, you know, a bald spot where it is because the hair hasn't started growing back yet. Um, but also they had to shave other random little places to put um, for like the mapping. They had to put little things to help guide them through the process wait, wait, wait what yeah I, I can't remember what they're called but they're like these little sticker adhesive things that okay. they need to put directly on your scalp and that's what's going to help them you know the right angles and all of those types wow. of things and it helps guide them through the procedure and it has to be bald where they put it and so i have my hair parted like way over here these days <sighs> Because I got all these baby hairs growing in. (laughs) Yeah. And so, yeah. Anyway. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. So I was a little bummed about that because I did not realize that they would have to shave so much hair off. I mean, I was watching like whole clumps just coming right off. Wow. I would have said put me under for that part. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to know. Okay. So they send your samples off to the platypus and then and then it was cancer fuck yep 
So they, how did this go? So they called me and said, we have the results, come in for an appointment. I was able to get in like two days later. And it was my first time meeting with my neuro-oncologist. So it was like okay. a consult. And also like she was delivering the final results to me and also creating the treatment plan. And so me and both my parents went and she she just delivered the news. She said, so let's look at these pictures together. Um, you do know it's a grade two astrocytoma. I said, yes. And she said, and you know what? results we were waiting for i said yep we were waiting to find out if this was cancer and she said okay and the results did come back and um, this is cancer and so she just allowed for silence for a little while and i said so i have brain cancer and she said yes <sighs> so it was it was a tough appointment obviously um and that's when she said, you know, we're going to look at doing radiation. We're going to look at doing chemo. Um, but unfortunately, surgery, another surgery was not an option for me due to the location of the tumor. Oh, my God. Yeah. So typically that's the first, like, action step is go in and pull out what they can. Right. So that when they do radiation, there's less to target. But my... Oh, so, okay, I see. Yeah, so my biggest lesion, because I have three separate lesions, it's it's all one tumor, but they're three separate lesions. Okay. And the biggest one is located um, on the motor cortex. And so, essentially... Is that next to the fan belt? Yes, yep, and the radiator. <laughs> um, <laughs> um so there was a risk that I could become paralyzed on the left side of my body. And so they said, you know, if this was like a grade four, obviously the risk would oh sure would be worth it. But we're not there for you and we don't want to risk that for you. So surgery is not on the table for you. So I was bummed about that. Um, <laughs> not that I was excited for a brain surgery, but that I means just, there's so much more we have to target. It's that. You have such a mellow demeanor about all of this. Yeah. I've like, heard that. <laughs> you're explaining it to me in the same way that like we went to a Kenny Chesney concert and it started like a couple hours late. Um, <laughs> also, I may be paralyzed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard this before. Yeah. I have a very weird approach to all of this. I mean, it kind of makes sense because of the things that you have injected yourself into that you have kind of trained yourself to separate aspects. And so when she's giving you information, did you latch on to like the um, execution plan more than the diagnosis? Yeah, I would say um, I'm action oriented, which is helping me a lot in this because I was able to kind of switch gears and say, okay, so now what? What do we do? So I think that's helping me a lot in this too is I'm not going to just sit there and focus on the diagnosis. I'm going to focus on like, what do we do about it? Your parents' reaction? Were they, are they, like, do you guys have a similar 
outlook on things or? I would say we're all handling it pretty damn well. Um, obviously, you know, that, that appointment was pretty rough, but outside of that, we've been able to, we have our moments, of course, where it's emotional and, you know, we're like this, this is bullshit. This sucks. This is not fair. But for the most part, we're staying positive. We're staying busy. We're doing what we got to do to, to treat this. So we have a very similar approach to this. I mean, humans are resilient. And so if you would have asked me a year ago how I would handle a cancer diagnosis, I would have never thought it was like this. But humans are so resilient. And so when it actually happens to you, that's when you really realize, like, we have the ability to adapt pretty quickly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cancer patients I have found are some of the most positive individuals, which is interesting because, uh, you know, I meet somebody who has foot surgery and they're going to be in a boot for six months and they're super depressed. But I meet somebody who survived, you know, stage four cancer and, and all these wild things. And they're like, yeah, so we decided to go to the, the Tetons and just do all these wonderful <laughs> things. And it's just like, what the fuck? I, I did a fuck. <clears throat> I did. There was a, an individual who had battled cancer four times and she was, you know, in her sixties and she was like, it's this, I can't do this anymore. And so she had, um, a going away party and her favorite color was green. So we had all of these, you know, green, green M&Ms in every shade of green that we could find or that they could find and, um, green jello and just anything that they could find that was green. They, they got for her and she had this green like velvet jacket and she was just so fucking positive and you would catch moments where like people would remember why they were there and just like everything was sucked out of them and I was there to photograph this and like try and show it in a positive light and it was just like I would just be sitting there for like 15 minutes at a time just sitting in this fucking heartbreak and then she would come around and be like hey let's you know talk about the first time somebody grabbed your butt or like <laughs> just super weird shit and you're like hey man we're still gonna be here when you're gone and this is a lot to take in but yeah there's there's something about it like i've never met somebody who had a cancer diagnosis and was like my life is over it's that resiliency and but how and why is it these is it that cancer attacks people who are resilient? You know what I mean? Or is it something about this diagnosis that creates this? Well, we're not giving up. And so what do we do next? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know if it's a cultural thing or what the fuck it is, but because I hear you. Mm -hmm. And yes, humans are resilient. But we're also huge babies and we'll yell at a 15 year old because they didn't give us the extra large fries that we ordered. So we suck. <laughs> but we're also resilient. And it's just it's such a yeah, it's a conundrum to me. Yeah, it just it changes your perspective 
on things, I think, because you you really learn the meaning of like living in the moment. Life isn't a given um, and all of those types of things. And so I think it's kind of like adapt or die. <laughs> I'd rather adapt. <laughs> yeah. Um, ha- have there been any restrictions since the diagnosis? Like if they said you're not allowed to smoke cigarettes anymore or anything like that? Um, not really. They that highly last rec- part was a joke. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> they they highly recommend you take care of yourself. Okay. You um you know you eat a good balanced diet. You exercise. All of those kinds of things. But they don't say like you can no longer do this or it could be detrimental to your condition. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Is like if you if you got a concussion. Does that affect, you know, you different than somebody who, you know, like my daughter got a concussion this summer and was fine after two days, you know, does, so like, yeah, I guess my brain went to like, do they say no more horse riding or longboarding or any shit like that, but no flight restrictions either? No. So have you thought of travel or anything in in that regard yeah quite a bit actually (laughs) i feel like obviously like a big sense of urgency to like live my life and do the things i've always wanted to do and um when i got the diagnosis i think it was like a a wednesday or a thursday and immediately i'm like i'm going to the cabin now oh so it's like this I need to travel, I need to get away, I need to go do these things. And so I would love to get out, I would love to go see the places I want to see, and we have all this medical debt, you know, as cancer patients. And so it's kind of, it's shitty because we obviously, that's our priority is to try to keep up with our bills and things like that. But also we want to knock the things off on our bucket list. And so balancing those things. And that's where family and friends are so important. Because, you know, my family's already planning an awesome trip for us this winter. And um, Nashville? I think we're going to go tropical. Oh, okay. Yep. Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, like, leave the country. Nice. (laughs) I need the ocean and I need palm trees. Oh, nice. Yep. Um, yeah, that whole, uh, the billing side of things is so frustrating because it's like, there's two questions. Like first is, do we need to be so aggressive with like the billing and reminding them of the debt that they have? And then the answer is, well, yeah, cause they might die. And it's like, you pieces of shit. Like, why? Ugh! It sucks that, like, I get people need to be paid and whatever. But, like, to what extent does somebody who is diagnosed with something so fucking heavy need to be held accountable for the financial burden that's that comes along with this shit? Because, yeah, there's there's all kinds of technology that's needed for these things. There's money that needs to be sent for research and this and that but like fuck man there's still people dying out there so like why on top of that are we saying 
just so you don't forget uh by by the end of this about 70 grand hope that's cool uh yeah. hopefully we'll see you in six months yeah yeah it's it's not a good system there's got to be a better <laughs> way but as of right now that's just the reality of it so that's i think why you don't see all these people just out there living their best life because who's going to pay for it yeah I handled that better than I thought I was going to. Because when you said that your parents were in there with you, I am like devastated when I find out that my daughter didn't get invited to a birthday party and she finds out about it. I'm like, oh, I, the fact that she has to go through this is just awful. I hate it. But <clears throat> something that heavy and you're all in the same room finding that out together, like it's just so 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 bonkers to me had had you guys dealt with cancer and the family at all prior to this like aunts or uncles or anything like that nope nothing like that man so you're the first and i'm i'm the baby and you're the baby yeah it's even worse what have your brother's reaction been to this my oldest brother um is taking it pretty hard he, I mean, I'm sure they both are. Right. Um, but one's a little more visible with their. Yeah. Yep. He, uh, he currently lives a few hours away. Um, he works in law enforcement and, you know, he's making arrangements to move, move back home to be closer. And, um, they're, they're so supportive. They're, they've signed up for days to drive me to my treatments and oh. they check in. And I think we're all just trying to figure out how to process it still um i think it probably doesn't feel super real to them or to me <laughs> oh yeah man yeah it's been a wild ride it went from anxiety to ms to it's a tumor but probably not cancerous to okay you have brain cancer god damn man and are you dating anyone currently Yep, I do have a boyfriend. And what was, how has that been going? So uh, he's just coming into this. We've only been seeing each oh, other for a couple months. Oh, okay. And he's, I've given him outs and he didn't want to take them. Wow. So he's, he's an incredible man. <laughs> this was post-diagnosis? Yep. Wow. It was back in June that, I mean, we've known each other for a few, you know, several months, but we started seeing each other in June and- I told him at at that time what was going on and he he didn't run the other direction. That's fucking beautiful, dude. I What's know. What's his name? Todd? Todd? Big ups to Todd? <laughs> his name's Kyle. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fucking but, awesome, man. Yeah, I mean, it'd be one thing if I'd already been with someone for a long time and then... That's what I was curious about because, I mean, this just came up a couple days ago where... Um, if you're dating someone for two weeks and then they become paralyzed, do you stay with this person? Like, do you have, I almost think of it as like survivor's remorse mm -hmm. where like, this is a, a you thing. We've only been seeing each other two weeks. So yeah, I was curious about like it, that cause I've seen relationships where something heavy happens and that person sticks around and it's like, they're not really the their full selves to the relationship. And it's such a bummer to see that. But yeah. the fact that this dude 
knew what was going on and was like, I'm sticking around. And then you were like, cool, I need help with my medical bills. And he was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't sugarcoat it for him. I told him, you know, I'll be in debt forever, probably. And, you know, these are the side effects that I'm going to be dealing with from my treatments and not always going to be up for things. I'm not always going to be pleasant to be around. You know, he knew all of it and he said, sign me up. So the common thread with you seems to be this urgency for advocacy, which I think is super interesting that, you know, at the age of 17 or 18, you developed this trait where it's like, if I don't, you know, advocate for myself, then I'm not going to be given the opportunities that I need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only person who has your best interest in mind is yourself. So, I mean, do you have, so this is the part of the show where I say, do you have advice for individuals who also have brain tumors? I'm kidding. That's not the advice that I was asking for. I don't know oh. how many people you know that have brain tumors. <laughs> <laughs> I've met one other person who's had a brain tumor. Uh, no, but um, as far as like the, because if you didn't advocate for yourself, what, a year from now, you'd be experiencing even worse symptoms, I would imagine. Yeah. And so you'd be like a year behind from where you needed to be. Um, so yeah, I guess... Um, advice for folks on like the advocacy part of things or you know I guess the the value that you've found in your outlook because it, it like I said it's like a common thread throughout your life of like advocacy and I I don't know you you have you really do have your best interests at heart which is interesting because not everybody feels like they deserve a whole lot yeah yeah, that's that's very true. It can be really uncomfortable to ask for what you need or say what you need, um, especially when a medical professional is kind of blowing you off and telling you you're fine. Um, it can be intimidating to come back and say, "No, I'm not." So I need I need more from you. Um, but my biggest piece of advice would be, you know your body best you know if something's wrong, even if it's just a gut feeling mm. where you're like, I think something's off. Or, you know, even if you're just feeling more fatigued than normal or you have tingling in your hand yeah. that you haven't had before, you know your body. Don't ever let someone make you feel silly for going in to get it checked out. Um, don't ever hesitate to ask for the MRIs and the blood work. You can ask for that. You don't have to wait for a doctor to say, I think you need this. So listen to your body. Be okay with being uncomfortable advocating for yourself because it's not a comfortable process. No. Um, I mean, it's somebody in a lab coat, it's so easy for them to make you feel stupid. Yep. Ugh. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so just don't let that happen. You know, just yeah. say no, something's wrong. And if it's not, great but I need to know for sure. So just always listen to your body and don't let someone make you feel like you shouldn't be reaching out for answers. Yeah. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, I, 
I'm I'm so psyched that like so many of these episodes over the last six months or however long I've been doing this specific one, I learn something new almost every time that I do this. And so thank you for, for sharing and everything. Yeah. Thank you for continuing to take my piercings in and out. <laughs> Honestly, it seems Always. like a small thing, but I've told my family about you guys, about how, you know, I go in frequently to have them taken out and then I come back the next day to have them put right back in. And, you know, I, the only time I've ever been charged a single penny is when I had new jewelry put in, but you mm. guys have never charged me um, for any of that. And I appreciate that too. It seems small, but it it's big. I was going to say, I'm going to cry in Justin's arms tomorrow. It's like, somebody appreciates us. Very much. You guys are awesome. <laughs> well, you're awesome. Do you have any shows coming up? Any stand-up? <laughs> no. Anything no. you want to promote? I'm, any books coming out? Um, I am going to be starting a blog. Are you really? Yep. I don't have it up and running yet, but I'm going to be, I'm doing the research to figure out all of the things and then... The only thing I know for sure is that it's going to be called Kiss My Astrocytoma. What a fucking name. That's awesome. Yep. So I'll get that up and running. And But yeah, as of right now, nothing special. Dude, <laughs> that is so awesome. Thank well, you. Yes. Thank you again. And to the listeners, be well to yourselves.